Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Good morning, Gospel Community Church. This morning, it's gonna be a video recording. I know that's not ideal, but we wanted to stay faithful to walking through the book of Judges and knowing that I was gonna be out of town. And so we pre-recorded this so we could uh, keep walking through the book of Judges and so I could deliver the sermon to you guys this morning. Throughout it, I might uh, pause at certain points and maybe point at people and call out Becco or Michaela for talking during the sermon because that's uh, what they do in typical fashion just to make it more personal. So, but I love you guys and miss not being uh, here with you guys this weekend, but hope that uh, this would serve you guys well. Uh, so please uh, turn with me to the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 14. As we work through our series title, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. It's purposely spelt wrong again because you see the foolishness in that, just like we see the foolishness of the Israelites to tell God that they know what's right and to live that way. And this actually goes back to Genesis, which we'll look at today. So that's where we're at. And I just want to kind of recap what is, is has happened thus far in Judges. So first, we have this guy named Othniel, who's a pretty ideal judge. And then from him forward, we just kind of see this downward spiral that happens. We see that the Israelites cry out, repent, turn to God, but then quickly after they turn to the idols of the world and the cycle continues. 
What we are seeing now and what we've just seen is this guy named Jephthah. And Israel's getting so confused to who the God of Israel even is that he thinks that uh, human sacrifice is something that would please God, which is something that the Canaanites did, but that wouldn't please God at all. Then we are told of this birth story, the nativity story of Samson, this deliverer that God is raising up. And that's where we're at today. We are actually now moving into Samson's life. This is the final judge in the book of Judges. Remember, judges were rulers, military rulers that were meant to deliver God's people through war, through battle and whatnot. So today we're going to look at the story of this man named Samson as he is now grown up. So we don't have much. We had chapter 13 that tells us uh, how his parents were to raise him. And now we get to see what he's like as a full grown man. And so what we are going to see is that this is not a hero that we should idolize, look up to, and model. And in a lot of ways, in, in a lot of ways, that's what we end up doing with with biblical characters. What we're going to see is this is actually a, a horrific man who is very fallen and very broken. And God uses him, though he's fallen and though he's broken, to show God's goodness and God's glory. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that remind us just how broken and fallen we are. We thank you for these stories that show just how good and grace-filled you are. Remind us this morning, encourage us this morning, Father, as, as every seat um, or as every person who's sitting in this room this morning needs this. They need to know who you are and they need to know what you've done. God, it's our tendency to think that we can save ourselves. Remind us this morning that it is you who saves. It is you who saved your people. It is you who continues to save your people. It's the message of the gospel that we need. Spirit, remind us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point I want us to walk away with this morning to remember is when we make pleasure our treasure. When we make pleasure our treasure, and what we're going to see is this man named Samson did that. He constantly made pleasure his treasure. And we can see even the downfall of his life. As we even open up and, and start in chapter 14, verse 1, it says this, Samson went down to Timnah, which is even telling in itself that, that, that the first thing that we see of this grown man is, is, is moving down geographically, but also his life we can see is moving in that, that direction as well. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So this is what we're dealing with. This is now a grown man who travels to this city, lays eyes on a Philistine woman. And, and this is what we need to remember. The Philistines are oppressing Israel. The Philistines are Israel's enemy. And so he's literally getting ready to get in bed with Mary, connect himself to the enemy. Instead, he should be looking at the Israelites and looking at the Philistines and saying, man, these people are causing so much oppression to my people. Instead, the only thing that Samson thinks with is his own pleasure. I'm walking around. I see a woman. She's right for me because she's attractive. 
That's his basis. This woman's right for me because I like the way that she looks. And so he makes his decision and he goes back as an entitled teenager or young man would and says, this is what I want. Get her for me. And that's how he talks to his parents. Now, here's the thing. Oftentimes when we see stuff like this, we're like, man, he's messed up. Sometimes we as parents also need to take the responsibility for our entitled children and for the direction that their lives are moving. It's not always the case that we can put that pressure on us, but we are called to love, serve, and discipline our children. Sometimes this attitude comes from a lack of discipline. Discipline is grace. Discipline is love. In fact, God disciplines those that he loves. And so maybe there's just a lack of that. And maybe his parents are lacking in that, but they appeal to him and they're like, Hey, is there not a, a woman from, from, from our people that you can marry? We need to understand this. God is not against interracial marriage. He's, he's against interfaith relationships and marriage. And, and here's the reason why this stems from, uh, back in Deuteronomy, it says this in seven, three, and four, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is God talking to the Israelites and he's saying, don't give them over uh, to the people of the land of Canaan. Don't intermarry with them because they are not covenant people. They, they do not know the God of Israel. They do not serve and worship him. We also see an example of uh, ways that this can be done with Moses's wife, Zipporah, because she was not... Um, an Israelite by her ethnicity, but she was part of Israel through recognizing God's covenant with Israel. And so what we need to see and understand is that God wants us to be in relationship, to be yoked with, to be married with, to be involved with someone who also loves God as well. I've used this example before, is that God forbid, but if, if something were to happen to my wife, and, and someone came along and said, hey, Rick, uh, I don't want anything to do with your kids, but I really love you. That would be a deal breaker for me because so much of my heart is given to my kids. So much more if someone came along and said, hey, Rick, love you. I want nothing to do with your God. That is where my heart and affections are given to and tied up with is Jesus. I would say, if you don't want anything to do with this and you'll never understand this, then you'll actually never understand me what makes me tick, how I think through decisions in life, how I process things. And, and, and so we can just start to see that what's going to have to happen is a divide, the divide in the marriage or the divide with the relationship with, with God. And so this is why God com, uh, commands us and calls us to be yoked with someone who has the same faith as us. If not, our hearts will be divided and, and our marriages will be divided. But God also makes it clear that if you are in a marriage with someone who is not a believer and you are in that marriage already to stay in that and fight to display grace for them. The other thing we need to see here is this is a man that makes pleasure his treasure. Pleasure in the things of this world. He saw, get it, Samson saw this woman. He laid eyes on her and said, I want it, I'm going to take it. And then he says, as we see here, that she is right in my eyes. This takes us back to something. We have to see what the author of Judges is doing, which is ultimately the divine author of the whole Bible is taking us back to Genesis one, two, and three. The, the Hebrew word raha is the same word that's used in Genesis, saw. Samson saw, raha. God saw what he made, raha, and deemed it good. 
And God continues to do this in the creation process. God deems what is good. Then in Genesis 3, we see that the woman sees fruit. She has her own selfish desires and pleasures that she wants to fill. She raha the fruit. She saw the fruit. She laid eyes on it and said, I want it. I'm going to make it mine. And then from then on, we see the downward spiral, not just in judges, but with humanity to see things that we deem pleasurable, that we deem good and say, it's right in my eyes. I deserve it. I get to have it. I'm going to make it mine. And we see the selfishness that it creates and the downward spiral of humanity. So we're seeing this now in Judges, but we've seen it throughout the biblical narrative. And so that's what he does. We, we, we need to remember this, is that our culture is constantly, especially now in our day and age, trying to determine and say, this is what's right. This is what needs to happen. This is what's good. When it comes to sexual ethics, when it comes to many things, they're saying this is what's right. What we need to remember is the God of the Bible has laid out for us what is good and he is good. And so we need to trust what his word says, not what our guts tell us, not what our passions tell us, not what, this is, not what society at large tells us. We need to trust God because he actually knows what is good. And nowadays people are saying, just do whatever feels good to you. Love is love, whatever it is, just love this, love that, just do as you will. But we see the downward spiral that actually happens with that. We see it here, but we continue to see it in society. This is what happens when we make the worldly pleasures our treasure. And so we continue on with the story in, in, in verse four. All scholars agree. This is kind of the just big verse in this whole passage. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So here's what's happening. God is using this sinful, broken man, even his sinful, broken desires that have been a result of the fall to accomplish his will. God will work in the midst of horrific evil to bring about good. And we actually see this through the cross. We, we see this in Acts chapter two, verse 23. It says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God ordained all this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. So we see both. We see God in control as the author, the one ordaining, but we also see God using the wickedness of man and the wickedness of God's heart. And so we need to see and recognize that, that it is God who is ultimately working in the midst of, of, of chaos and a horrific man to accomplish good for his people. Verse five, then Samson went down with his family and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So he's headed to Timnah, probably to make preparations for his wedding, because his parents gave in and said, sure, this is what you want. So he's headed down. A lion comes upon him. The spirit of the Lord moves upon him. We need to see all throughout this story that, that his strength is ultimately empowered by the spirit of the Lord. And I believe Samson forgets this. So he tears this lion apart. So he breaks his first Nazarite vow. Does it here by touching something dead, which would make you ceremonially unclean. And he does it later by going back to the lion and getting honey out of it that we'll see. Verse eight, after some days, he returns to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion. 
and honey. He scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Okay, so again, we're seeing this. This man was supposed to be raised with the Nazarite vows. Three things. Don't cut your hair. Don't drink any fermented drinks, anything alcoholic, and don't touch anything dead. He breaks his hair, but he also, he looks like a good little boy who goes back and gives his parents a nice treat. This is the equivalent of someone robbing a bank and buying like flowers or car or something like that and giving it to their parents. This is a big deal for Jewish people to offer them something that is ceremonially unclean and hand that to them. And that's exactly what he does. Because again, Samson just thinks about himself and, and what he wants, not even about his parents and, and how this is something that would make them unclean. He's a man filled with selfish pleasures and desires, and that's what he makes his treasure. We need to know this and recognize this. What we are seeing is a man's sin spiraling. We are seeing a man's sin who's growing. When Jeremiah says in chapter 17, or when it talks about man's heart, it says that man's heart is deceitful. That's how it starts. Then it says that it's desperately sick. We, 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 we need to recognize this. Our hearts are deceitful. And here's what that means. We tend to think that we can isolate sin into pockets of our heart and pockets of our life. Like I, I have my, my, my porn struggle, my lust struggle over here. I have my, um, my, um, idle section over here. I have my jealousy here. I have my pride here. I have these things. What we tend to think are these are pockets that don't seep into other areas of my life that our sin is isolated or we have a control. This is just one compartment of my heart and life. We need to recognize this. Sin seeps. Sin, sin spills over. Sin is a sickness. And the deceit there is to think that you somehow have control of the rest of your heart. And this one thing is just kind of an isolated pocket over here. The truth is, is that this is like yeast that spreads throughout the whole loaf. It is like a sickness. Whenever you have the flu or something, you can't isolate it to one part of your body. The sin will run and rule your heart and life. What we are not seeing here is that the Israelites aren't even crying out anymore. They have become so used to sin in their lives. They are like slaves to it. And they don't even see the oppression of the Philistines or what they're living in because their hearts have slowly been given over to the mastery of sin. What we are seeing is that Samson is here driven by pleasure. He, he's driven by lust. He's driven by his desires, what he wants. And we're going to see this. This also makes him angry. This makes him a person who's just not content. He's lacking contentment. We see all these things because sin will spread until it gets mastery over our lives and it will impact everything. We'll wonder, why am I becoming more angry? Why am I becoming more jealous and more prideful? It's not because sin is just this one isolated thing I struggle with that spreads. So the question we need to ask ourselves right now is this. What sin are we tolerating? What sin has our society just kind of deemed as okay? You watch so many shows now and, and it's, it's just typical that, that people that aren't married are living together and sleeping together. And, and, and our shows that we watch in society, uh, our, our staff before even making this was just talking about New Girl. I, I mean, you can see the way that our culture influences stuff just to see stuff as, yeah, it's normal. It's no big deal. And then we start to live like that. So the question is, is what are the things that we are slowly starting to master our hearts, that we are allowing to master our hearts, that are eventually going to control our hearts, control our emotions, control our desires? We need to ask that question. We need to wrestle with what that is. 
because we are seeing this here. This is something that happens. It is something that spreads. It is a sickness that will grow. And it's not some isolated area that has happened. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young man used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Okay. He set it down to his wedding. He's preparing a feast. The Hebrew word feast here actually is, is, is literally means drink or consumption of, of alcohol. And so this is a drunken fest. So he's likely just getting ready to break his, his other Nazarite vow here. And then he's brought 30 companions. This is telling Samson doesn't even have a single friend to go to his own wedding with him, that the people of uh, uh, the, the Philistine people provide him with 30 friends. These are men. Now, some believe that these are actually bodyguards meant to keep an eye and watch him. But what we're also seeing is this is a man who doesn't seem to have any community and any friends, which is another thing I would say, as far as application goes, we have to be careful we have to be careful to not live an isolated form of Christianity, which does not exist. We have to have community. We have to be in close community. We have to be there where we're confessing sin, where we have people seeing in, in, in our lives and speaking into our lives. He has no one to talk him off the ledge. He has no one to speak into his life and say, Samson, it looks to me like you're just living for your own pleasures and you're making that your treasure. He doesn't have that. It's provided for him. Let's keep reading here in verse 12. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. Okay. So he's likely had some beverages and now he is going to give them a riddle. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, great, put, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Okay. And in three days, they cannot solve the riddle. Now, scholars have gone back and forth on what this riddle means. Is there some underlining stuff going on here? Uh, like what exactly does this riddle mean? If we take it for what we have access to and just read it as it is, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. He gave them an unsolvable riddle. Like you can't solve this riddle unless you know the details that he knows. For instance, we were uh, uh, the other night at dinner, I gave our kids a riddle. I said this, I said, um, slow to move, hard on top. It has four legs, unlike you. And then I said it again, it's, it's slow to move. It's hard on top. It has four legs, unlike you. And then I also said, it's hard on top or slow to move hard on top. It breathes out of its butt, unlike you, which is a turtle. And I don't know if that second part is true, but I got that from uh, frozen Two because Olaf says it, but I gave this to them and they could solve the riddle because we can put those pieces together. You can't put this together unless you know that he's just killed a lion and that he took some honey out of it. And so he's given them something impossible. But here's what, what we need to see. Now, he's so driven by pleasure that he, he's running after this, this feast, this drunken fest. And just to be clear, 
I believe, and we believe through a leadership stance at GCC, that alcohol is a gift of God. It is a gift of God that he has given. It's a good gift, but it's a gift and it needs to be seen as that. When alcohol becomes God, then it's no longer a gift that's meant to be um, enjoyed. It's something that's controlling our lives. And in this case, it's leading him to throw out riddles that are unsolvable, and it's also leading him to gamble. So now we have this man driven by his lust, driven by just fixing his eyes on a woman. He rips open this lion, he tears it apart, he touches it, he grabs the honey out of there. Of course, he's gonna get food, he's gonna get something sweet. Why would he do that? Because he's driven by his own pleasures and he's making that his treasure. Not everything we lay eyes on, not everything's sweet, not everything is something good that we should be consuming. But if you're only driven by what you want, we'll be like Samson. Then he goes to his own wedding where he's driven by his lust to just drink. And now he's gambling and, and, and now he's throwing out riddles. He's literally crashing his own wedding. Here, what we are seeing and what we are continuing to see is this is a man who has made pleasure his driving treasure. So this is something important for us. One of the ways that, that, that we can move beyond our own self-pleasure being treasure and just seeing things that we want, saying, that's, that's it, I got to have this, I got to make this mine, is by, this is another application, is by getting out of ourselves to encourage, to love, and to serve. Let me just, if I can, graciously challenge this is when we announce softball signups at our church, man, we get people to sign up. We got like 20 signups. We announce that we have some serving and volunteer needs. It's like crickets. Now, hey, I'm just saying, this is a prime example of, of this is something that sounds fun, something I want. I think I'll have that. This one sounds like it's gonna uh, uh, not be something that just like, is just that I love in, in doing. Oftentimes, the way out of pleasure is learning to say no to ourselves and just everything that we want that sounds fun to us. And so a challenge that I would give you guys is this, is that we need to grow in saying no to the flesh. We need to grow in saying no to, to just our sinful desires and our selfishness and, and all of our wants. And one of the ways we can practically do this is by like a weekly fast. Jesus talks about fasting. What I mean by this is that we can kind of go for a week and say, this week I'm gonna say no to something. Like maybe this week I'm gonna say no to social media. Maybe this week I'm gonna say no to Netflix. Maybe this week I'm gonna say no to sweets. Don't fast something that you hate, like vegetables or something like that, because that's not purposeful. Or even don't fast something because in the end it's gonna produce you know, greater fitness or something like that. Actually fast things that are gonna be difficult for you to say no to in practice of this. We are called to wage war against the, the, the things of this world. And, and that's, that's what this means. Or, or let me explain what this means. Is that we are called to not be lovers of the things of this world, all the fleshly desires, all the pleasures, all the things and make those things our God. In fact, our souls are, are called to be at war with those things, to not constantly be given over those things, to not love those things, to not make those things our greatest treasure and our pleasure. Instead, Christ is meant to be that. And so this is a, just a practical way on a weekly basis. We can train our bodies to say no to things of this world, because if there's no conflict with Christians, if there's no conflict with the church and everything that the world has, then we have to ask some questions. Are we making every worldly pleasure our treasure or is Christ our treasure? Let's go on. He's, he's at the wedding. He puts forth the riddle. Verse 15 on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? 
And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father or my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him seven days uh, that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you had not found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those who had told them, who told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Wow. What's happening? This is what's happening. You can see the depth of this marriage. And, and just as also a side note, this marriage is, is, is not driven by love. It's driven by lust. And oftentimes we confuse infatuation and lust in today's society for love. Love is oftentimes a sacrifice. It's a, it's a devotion, not something purely emotionally driven. So we can see as, as the marriage is even uh, just getting started at the outset of it. I mean, it's off to a bad start. Like she's willing to sell out her husband uh, to protect herself and to protect her family. He's willing just to walk away and give up on her because oftentimes we think love is this hot passion, this, this emotion, this electricity and all these things. When in fact, love, biblical love is going to require sacrifice and devotion. And oftentimes I tell people, you haven't really probably experienced what true sacrificial love is until a lot of those emotions are gone until the five or seven year itch we, we, we say in marriage, because that's when love kicks in, when, when the emotions start to subside. And then we are called to love out of the sacrifice. But you see this, they're all willing to just sell out, give up on one another. Why? Because they're all driven by their own pleasure and that's their treasure. What's best for me? What do I want? Not what's best for my spouse. However, she does seem to be driven by a love for her family. Her love for her family and for her people is more than her love for her new husband. Samson gets, I mean, ticked off. I mean, he is angry because she sells him out. And then he even calls his wife a heifer. I mean, I, I, I don't know that it gets much worse than that. And then he goes to Ashkelon, just, just to give you some context here. He travels 23 miles. Like, this isn't like a, hey, I'm going to go walk and cool off. He travels 23 miles. He's still enraged that he kills these Philistines and he takes their garments. And then he walks 23 miles back and then delivers them over to the people to pay his debt. Now... At the end of this, he just goes and he leaves his wife. He leaves his wedding feast and, and she's given away to, to one of these 30 companions that he had at the wedding feast. And this is how this story ends in chapter 14. It's dark. It's horrific. But here's what's happening. God is delivering his people. God is using all of this to, to take out, to crush, to bring forth his justice on the Philistines through this man's hot rage, through his lust, through his just, this is a, this is a, this dude sucks. I don't know what else to say. This is a horrific, horrible man. And God is using this man and, and he's using this to accomplish his will. What is his will? Oftentimes we think that God is giving up on us or that God is done with us or that God's ready to quit us. 
and and we can think that because we are also given over to our pleasures and our worldly pleasures that we've made our treasure. There's a battle with sin in, in our lives, and we just think that God is just done with us, that he's wiped our hands, and, and he wants nothing more to do with us. I love what Dane Ortland says. He says, sometimes we need to repent for the dark thoughts we have of a loving and gracious God. What we have to see in this story, what we have to see is that God is actually fighting for his people, the Israelites, when they don't even know it, and they're not willing to fight for themselves. This is a story of radical, scandalous grace. We don't see them doing anything good. We don't see Samson doing anything good. We see a good God being driven by his good, infinite love and faithfulness for his people to do whatever it takes to crush their enemies and to bring them salvation and redemption. We see in Judges that God originally uses an army, a massive amount of people with Deborah and Barak to save his people. And then it gets smaller, he uses 300 men. And then here in this story, what we see is God uses one man to accomplish salvation for his people. What, 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 what we are seeing is, is, is what we would call typology, a, a type, a figure that is pointing forward to this that God will ultimately save his people through one man entering the story. But this man is not going to come to fill his own selfish wants and his own selfish needs. This, this man, Jesus Christ, came to give us what we ultimately need. We are pleasure hungry, and we are hungering for worldly pleasure. We make that our treasure. In fact, every time there's a lack of contentment in our life, that lack of contentment is likely there because we've elevated something in this world to a place of our pleasure and our treasure. And it's now showing us that it is not able to give us the contentment we thought it would. We, 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 we idolize the things we idealize. And what I mean by that is we have this ideal of how things should work out and we make that our pleasure and treasure and we lift it up and idolize it. And when it doesn't happen, we are lacking contentment. Everything in this life that lacks Everything in this life that, that leads us going, man, there should be more. There's something lacking from my life is because it is only meant to point to the one place that we will actually find true pleasure in, who needs to be our treasure. And so here's, here's the trick. It's not that we need to divorce ourselves or separate ourselves from pleasure. In fact, the thing that we need is we need to have pleasure be our treasure. The problem is, is we need to find our ultimate pleasure in God. We need to find our ultimate pleasure in Christ. And if you think the way out right now is to just become moralistic, if you're like, man, I've heard this, I got to fight. I got to start striving to find my treasure and my pleasure in Jesus. That's not going to work. This isn't a story about strapping up um, or lacing up your bootstraps. This isn't a story about white knuckling. This is a story about how God fights and continues to fight through his love for his people, the way that God provides salvation, even when people aren't doing nothing. I recently watched Space Jam with my kids and LeBron James says in this movie multiple times, if you want to be great, you got to put in work. It's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is we aren't great. In fact, we are people who seek our own pleasure and our own treasure and our own selfish desires, but ultimately Christ, who's great, stepped in. And it's not our work. It's not our ability to do anything. It's the fact that every moment of every day in Christ's life, he found his ultimate pleasure and treasure in God. When he went to the, Christ, uh, the cross, he died for the fact that we make everything in this world our pleasure and our treasure and our delight. He died for every time that we fix our eyes on the things that we know God's word says not to. He, he died for the ways and was crushed for the ways that we judge people when they walk in the room, for our pride, 
For every way that we make a worldly pleasure our ultimate treasure, Christ suffered and bore the wrath and the penalty for that. When we place our faith in him, God sees us as people that find their perfect pleasure in him. That means every moment of every day, if you've placed your trust and faith in God, this is the gospel. This is the good news that God doesn't look at you and see you as someone who's constantly finding your pleasure in the things of this world. God looks at you and sees a clean and pure man or woman who's found their ultimate pleasure in him because that's what Christ did for us. The message of Christianity isn't if, if you want to be great, you got to put your work in. The message of Christianity is ultimately Christ put all the work in and we put our trust and our faith in him. What we need to do is if we want to grow or if we want to turn away from sin, what we need to do is start fixing our eyes upon the pleasure and the treasure of Christ, what he's done, how much he loves us, what he's provided for us, what he's given us. The more that he becomes our pleasure, our treasure, the more that we focus on how just big his love is and the sacrifice that he made and, and the purity, the, the victory he gives us. God does not see you as a person who, who has been defeated by sin. God sees you as someone who's defeated sin because his son defeated it for you. The more we get our minds and our hearts meditating on this, the more we will actually grow and be able to fight sin and turn away from sin and say no to sin. It's when he becomes our pleasure and our treasure, but when we understand what he's done for us, how much he loves us, that his grace for us is infinite, that we will say no to the things of this world. And next, and, and in closing, here's what I would say. If you're struggling with sin, that's a good sign. Struggle well. Struggling is tiresome, which means that we need to go to Christ and ultimately know that it's his struggle that we get to trust in. But we should be struggling the mark of a Christian life is that we should be persevering. We should be battling. We should be at war with, with, with this world and with what the world says is, is good, but what the Bible would call sin, like there needs to be a war. But I'd say this, you can't battle and struggle alone. You can't. First and foremost, what you need is you need the word of God to constantly be feeding and speaking and showing you the love of God, the sufficiency of Christ and what he's done. What you also need is prayer to ask God to strengthen you, to ask God to help you. You need the spirit of God, which he has placed inside of you to battle for you. And also what you need and you have to have, you have to have a community. Look, I don't know what your struggle is right now. I don't know if it's lust. I don't know if it's pornography. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's legalism or self-righteousness, but I do know this. You need to tell someone. That sin in due time will master and control your lives, just like the Israelites. You need to tell someone, you need to get real with someone. And you can do this for, or this, this makes it possible. When you know that you are a child of God, when you know that you have the full acceptance and approval of God and that he sees you as perfect, then you can step forward in, into relationships and say, hey, it's time for me to be real. It's time for me to get real. I'm making this thing my treasure. I'm making this pleasure my treasure. And then know this, I'll, I'll close this in reading this. The key to life, the key to life is pleasure. God's given good things. Sex is a great pleasure, not a great God, but a great pleasure. What we need to do and, and what we need is we need to make pleasure our treasure, but that pleasure needs to be Christ. And until it is, everything else in this life is going to not satisfy us. It's going to leave us wanting more. Psalm 1611. 
you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Christ, there's not pleasures at a slim level. There's pleasures forevermore. Our ultimate desire and the way we are created was to find our pleasure in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you so much that you choose to see us through faith in Christ as people that have sought your pleasure are our pleasure in you, that we've made you our treasure. Thank you, Jesus. As we take communion today, let us remember that you were the only one who has sought in your life after God the entire time. Let us remember you have given us a true identity in Jesus name. Amen.